Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A funny thing happened in the town of Darlington, Maryland several years ago. Edith, a mother of eight, was coming home from a neighbor's house just one Saturday afternoon. And she walked into the living room and she saw out of all eight children, there was only five in the living room, but that she saw all five of the youngest children huddled up in a circle together. Well, see, when you have five kids circled up together, that gets your attention. You're kind of wondering what's going on. And they were focused. They were concentrating on something. So Edith got a little closer, trying to discover what these kids were up to. And she couldn't believe what she saw, because right in the middle of her kids were five baby skunks. Well, not knowing what else to do, she screamed at the top of her voice, and she said, children, run! And so sure enough, each child grabbed a skunk and ran in a different direction. Life is like that sometimes. You're going along, minding your own business, and then the world just comes crashing in. Most of the time, we don't expect it. And not every problem this side of heaven, not every problem this side of glory has an easy answer. A job that is lost often cannot be regained. A loved one that has passed, we will not see again in this life. Some things cannot be undone. So how do you cope? How do you deal with these things? How do you deal with the heartache? How do you deal with the struggles? Paul's about to teach us in the book of Philippians that we turn to the sustaining grace of God. We survive these things and we thrive during these things by learning that God is with us even in the most difficult times and by learning that our eternal joy is only found in Him. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 where we find the Apostle Paul in one of these life-changing moments. If you remember from your own studies, he was under arrest in Rome at this point in time for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The year is around 62 or 63 AD, and we are picking up with the very last words of the book of Acts, where, where Luke tells us this, that in Rome, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concerned the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. You see, Paul at this point in history was forced to wait in the great capital of the Roman Empire while he waited for his hearing before Caesar. And Acts 28 tells us earlier in the chapter that Paul was not cut off from the outside world, but a, he had a soldier with him, guarding him, sitting there day and night with him. And it was during this difficult time in Paul's life that he was able to write Ephesians and Colossians, Philemon, and this letter to the church at Philippi. Now, just by looking 
At the letter itself, we learn a lot about the message. Written to mostly Gentile believers, it does not have a single quotation from the Old Testament in it. That is amazing for the Apostle Paul. Even though Paul found himself at a time when life had come crashing in on him under arrest for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The theme is joy, with Jesus Christ mentioned over 40 times in this short letter, with the obvious understanding that his joy in our lives and Jesus in our lives, they go hand in hand. But understand that when Paul talks about joy in this letter, he's not talking about an emotion. Paul was talking about something that is ingrained in us from Jesus Christ himself. Paul had a confidence that God is at work in the lives of the redeemed. Paul had a confidence that no matter what happens in life, God himself is in control and that God allowed all things to happen for one ultimate purpose, and that is the greater glory of our God. Paul recognized that our joy does not depend on how much stuff we have. Our joy does not depend on how many skunks have come into our lives. And our joy does not depend on other people. See, the joy that Paul is talking about is an attitude of the heart determined by confidence in God himself. Paul knew that he had no control over the struggles in his own life, but he also knew that God was working in him and he could let the word of God work in his life. His trust in God and his hope of glory guided him down that path of joy, no matter what he faced. It had been over a dozen years, over a dozen years since Paul and Silas had first planted the church at Philippi. Paul and Silas first preached there in about 49 AD when they were arrested and beaten for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now it is about a dozen years later and Paul writes starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy's with Paul at this point, and Paul identified himself not as an apostle. He doesn't mention anything about being an apostle, but he says what? A bondservant of Christ. This is where leadership in the church starts, by taking on the servant attitude of Christ. And then he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So he reminds me every time I go through Philippians, one of the story, the old story of when Dr. Ironside, an old time preacher in the early 1900s, he was on a train riding home from a, a Bible conference and he found himself surrounded by a bunch of nuns. And Ironside heard them talking about saints and he asked them. He couldn't help himself. He had a little bit of that immaturity streak in him and he asked them if they'd ever seen a real live saint. And no, they responded. They'd only seen the relics and the tombs of the dead saints. And Ironside just could not withstand it anymore. He couldn't help himself. He asked them if they would like to see a real, live saint. Well, sure enough, yes, of course they would. And then Dr. Ironside stood and said, Here I am. I'm Saint Harry. I'm a saint. Paul does the same thing here. 
Paul does the same thing. He says, stand up, Christians at Philippi. Here you are, saints of God. You see, despite what nuns think, and I'm not picking on poor nuns, but despite what they think, a saint is not someone who has made it further in their obedience to God than the rest of us. A saint is simply a Christian. It means holy one, one who is in Christ Jesus, one who is separated to God. I hope you understand this concept because it is a lie to think that the promises of the Bible are only reserved for those who have made it a little farther down the road in their faith than the rest of us. That only God hears their prayers because that's backwards. That is backwards. The Bible teaches that when a person becomes a Christian, at that moment, they're made saints once for all. And because of that position in Jesus Christ, every believer by faith is entitled to the rights and privileges of being a child of God. This is not a small thing. This is not a little thing. This is the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is not good news at all if I can be declared a saint if I practice good works. But it is good news if by faith in the work of Jesus, God sees his people as saints before him. With the position, privilege, and power to live a life that brings glory to him. I hope you see the difference. Paul greeted the bishops, elders in the church, responsible for shepherding or pastoring the church, and the deacons. The deacons meet the physical needs of the body of Christ. That is the role of deacons. Freeing up pastors to spend their time in prayer. Freeing up pastors to spend their time in the Word of God. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We get so used to that phrase, we don't even think anything about it. But you can search the Bible all you want. You will always find grace listed first every time. Because you cannot have peace until you have first had grace. You cannot have his peace in your life until you have first received his grace, which comes from God the Father. And what does he say? The Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Son, side by side, equal in authority, honor, and glory. Verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, these Christians, they brought Paul joy. Every time, he says, he thought of them, he thanked God for them. Now, Paul at this point is about 800 miles away about 800 miles away and under arrest for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet he's thanking God for them. It was the attitude of a heart of a man committed to Jesus Christ. Paul's love for them did not fade. His hardships in life, it made him better, not bitter. Do you hear that? There are two reactions that Christians have when they find a skunk in their life, when they face a hardship. They either become bitter and angry, or they become better. Better because they have learned to depend on Jesus Christ. You see, the weaker we are, the more we need to lean on God. And the more we lean on God, the thing that we will find is he is stronger than we ever imagined. But sometimes our prayer life 
is no better than the guy who prayed, Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I have not been greedy. I have not been grumpy, nasty, or selfish. I'm very thankful, God. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need your help. Take a look at the prayer life of Paul. Always thanking God for one another within the body of Jesus Christ. Oh, I want that type of prayer life right here. I really do. Paul said they brought joy to his heart because of their fellowship in the gospel. Partners together in the gospel. They believed it just like Paul did. And they worked together to spread that good news around the world. From the first day, Paul says in verse 5, that was the day that you can go read in Acts 16 when the scripture says the Lord opened Lydia's heart to the gospel of Christ. And then what did she do? She opened her home to the missionaries there. And then we will see later on in chapter 4 of Philippians that this support of Paul and his work, it continued. They gave him financial support to further the work of Christ. The message is share together as a church in the work of the gospel. That is where our fellowship is found. That is our bond. It's based on the true story of Jesus, his redemption in our lives. It starts there. We are the called out people of God, saved to serve, saved to share, saved to work together for his glory. So believe it, and then work together to spread the message of his grace. That is what brought Paul joy in prison, and it can bring joy to your life. It reminds me a little bit of the pastor who went to a prayer breakfast where he sat at a table with a group of men that he really didn't even know. And as the men sat there and talked, the subject of retirement came up. And the man sitting next to the pastor was in his early 50s, and he was so excited about the thought of retiring. In fact, he told the group about a conversation that he had with his wife that morning. My wife asked me, he said, what are you going to do when you retire? And I told her, I'm going to sit on the couch and watch TV all day long. And it was silent for a moment before the pastor told him, if you do that, you'll be dead in a year. Well, the man was a little shocked by this. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. And he asked why. And he, so he told him, if the lack of purpose, hear me, if the lack of purpose in your life doesn't kill you first, your wife sure will. <laughs> Isn't it one of the greatest tragedies that we see in the Western church today that Christians have lost their purpose? Christians have lost their purpose. You see, here is Paul, and it's an introductory section. I get it, but Paul's sitting in prison, in prison, about to be put on trial in Rome, and he's thinking about the work of God that God was doing in his people. I think it all comes down to our focus. I think it all comes down to our passion. Paul, you know, he had some memories there at Philippi. He could have thought about Philippi as this place that he was arrested without cause. He, he was beaten when he was first there. And he was put in the stocks and humiliated before the people. But even those memories brought him joy because it was through that suffering that the jailer, if you remember in Acts, found Jesus Christ. Paul had a passion in his life, and it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Joy comes when we discover that purpose, when we live to share Christ, and when we discover that God is working in us for His glory. And then Paul says in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you take no other verses home today, take this verse home. This is a good one to memorize. But be careful with it. Be careful with it because God's not guaranteeing you that your growth in Jesus Christ is automatic. That all you got to do is just be a believer and God's going to make you grow. Paul's confidence was not resting with the believers. Paul's confidence was with God himself. That all believers in Jesus Christ are resting secure in Christ. God is doing a work in you, Christian. He has designed his work in your life to impact other people in your life. You have a purpose in Christ. God will complete his work in you. He will finish what he started the day that he saved you. The good work that he is going to finish is the work that salvation starts, begins. God will finish what he started in your life. Now notice that God is the one who started this work in your life. It starts with God. Salvation starts with God, not men. Jesus Christ placed you into the church. You were justified. You were declared righteous when God brought you to salvation. And right now we're being sanctified. What does that mean? It means made more and more like Jesus Christ a little bit each day, hopefully. We grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ by the power of the Spirit and the teaching of the Word of God. And then one day, what a glorious day it's going to be. Then one day we're going to be glorified when we stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul is telling the Christians, you were justified. God did this. God would continue to help them grow and God would one day glorify them. Paul was talking about their partnership with him in the work of the gospel. Paul was confident that God would continue to work in them for the glory of the gospel. And the effects of that work together would be seen at the judgment seat of Christ. You see, God is using the work of Christ far beyond what you or I can see or understand. And Paul says that God's work would continue until what? The day of Jesus Christ. Now, the day of Christ is not, is not the same as the day of the Lord. It's a reference to the rapture of the church. God's work will continue in his people until he returns for his own at the rapture. The New Testament refers to the day of Christ six different times. When the scripture mentions the day of the Lord, it's always about judgment, judgment, judgment. But when the New Testament refers to the day of Christ, every time the context shows it refers to the church, the bride of Christ, when Christ returns for his church and this time of salvation for the church comes to a close. When our works are examined and the believer is rewarded. Verse 6 should be one of the most comforting verses in the entire Bible for the Christian. Because our safe passage to heaven as a believer in Jesus Christ does not depend on us and our ability to hold on and keep trying for God or to keep striving for God until the end of our lives. The Lord is going to see to it that even though we fail and stumble in our faith, God will see to it that we reach heaven. Salvation is God's work, 
not man's. And just as surely as he has delivered us from the penalty of sin, just as surely as that, one day he will deliver us from the presence of sin in our lives. One day he will deliver us into glory with him. You see, Paul was looking forward to the day when the dead in Christ shall rise and the believers receive their glorified bodies. God will complete the work that he started in each and every one of us. That is the promise of the gospel. So Paul continues with verse 7 where he says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. See, when Paul thought of the believers at Philippi, He didn't have to question. He felt their commitment. They had a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had a commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Even when it was difficult, even when it was hard, even when it was dangerous to identify with the Apostle Paul, even when he was about to stand on trial before the Roman emperor for the gospel of Christ. They identified with Paul because they identified with Jesus Christ. Paul didn't see himself on trial as much as it was Christ on trial. And because we share the same grace as those who suffer, we should be willing to stand with those who do suffer for the gospel. Share in the struggle of standing together for Christ. Share in the pain of ministry together. That's the kind of relationship that Paul had with the church. And the fact that they stood behind him, this very thought strengthened him. This very thought brought him joy. See, Paul was saying, you've been with me when I was in prison in chains. You've been with me when I had to defend the gospel. You've been with me when that gospel was proved true in the lives of God's people. We have suffered and labored together in the ministry. It's been estimated that Paul spent as much as one quarter of his mission's career in prison. And those prisons back in that day were no fun place to be. A Roman prison meant that you were stripped naked and then flogged. It was humiliating. It was painful. It was a bloody ordeal. The bleeding wounds went untreated as prisoners sat in those painful leg or wrist irons. If your clothes were wet and stained with blood, they were not replaced, even in the dead of winter, even in the cold of winter. Most cells were dark, especially the inner cells of prison, like the one Paul and Silas had been in when they first came to Philippi. Unbearable cold, lack of water, the stench from a lack of sanitation made it difficult to sleep and it made it miserable miserable to sit there through the day. Prisoners often begged for a speedy death. You see, that's what Paul had to go through when he first preached Christ at Philippi. That's what Paul had to go through in order to share the good news time and time again. But the Philippian believers, they stood with him, even now as Paul wrote this, under Roman guard in Rome. Later on in the book, Paul thanks them for coming to visit him, for sending money to take care of his needs. They suffered together, and it brought them together like nothing else could. Paul knew his trial before Caesar was fast approaching. He knew the defense he would give, and he thanked God these believers stood with him. Paul knew that the grace of God would sustain them. 
See, God's sustaining grace, what is that? We talk of this, but let's define it. God's sustaining grace is the power to keep going even when you feel like giving up, to endure even when you don't think you can because you rely on him. And so Paul tells them in verse 8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. This reminds me a little bit of the older couple that went into the hospital, and he was having chest pains, and it turned out to be a heart attack, and so he was quickly taken away by the hospital staff. And hours passed before his wife was allowed to see him. And she walked in and her heart kind of sank when she found him hooked up to all the machines that helped him breathe and monitored his heart. And she walked quietly into his room towards his bed and she bent over and whispered, George, George, I'm here. And then she kissed him and suddenly that little heart monitor started beating faster and faster and faster. And she explained later, he was okay. But after 47 years of marriage, it's nice to know that I can still make his heart skip a beat when I kiss him. Cute story, isn't it? You know, in verse 7, Paul is telling the church, it's nice to know that after all these years, you still care. After all these years, you still care. You still support me after a decade of ministry, he's saying. You still stand with me for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, he's saying, I feel the same way. Literally what he says here is, I long for you deep in the gut. Paul's feelings for these people ran deep. In modern language, if we wrote it down today, he's saying, I have the heart of Jesus Christ for you. That is what happens in our lives when Christians work together, struggle together. Some of you have been here a couple years. As long as I've been here, some have been here longer. And you know how this bond, serving Christ in the good times and bad times, it brings you closer together. You see, Paul had the love of Christ pouring through him. Paul knew this. God knew this. This is the love that came from Christ himself. But if you're asking, well, why then did Paul take this oath here? It is because he knew that within the church he loved so much. There were some, because there's always some, there were some who doubted his love. There were some who doubted his ministry. And all that Paul could do was testify that God was witness to his love for them. So look at his prayer. This is an amazing prayer starting in verse 9. Paul says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. This is the heart of a man of God. This is the heart of an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is putting forth what he would like to see in the lives of these believers as they learn to grow in his grace. And he says, I pray that you abound in your love. He's saying, let it be overflowing. Let it be full. Let it be more than enough. You see, the Greek word here, the Greek picture behind the word abound is that of a bucket that sits underneath a gigantic waterfall. And the water is flowing into the bucket. And the bucket, it cannot possibly contain all this water that is pouring in. And so it's overflowing on all sides. It's just pouring out. See, Paul prayed that their love would continue to grow and grow and just spill out until it could not possibly be contained. 
But this is not blind love. This is not foolish love. This is the love that comes directly from the heart of God. Paul is talking about a love that is tied to knowledge and discernment. You know, someone once described love as the condition where all your senses are heightened except common sense. But that's not the type of love that God is calling us to, is it? Paul says this love is based on knowledge. This is love that is based on the very wisdom of God that helps us to walk in discernment. It's a love that is based on the character and mind of Christ living in us, the love revealed in his word. That way we can choose the best path, not just a good path, the best path. Love that is not based on the knowledge of God's word, it ends up hurting people rather than helping them. You see, love without the knowledge of God's word, it's like a river that won't stay in its lane, that won't stay in its channel. It overflows its banks and it brings destruction. It brings chaos rather than order. Love should be guided on two sides by the river bank of knowledge on one side and on the other side discernment. Love needs to be guided correctly by God. Otherwise, sin, we can overlook it in other ways that we shouldn't. And it, our motives, they end up becoming selfish. You see, Paul is, is telling the church the Spirit of God. Spirit of God leads us to love, genuine love. So be sincere. Be real in your walk with the Lord. But sometimes the things that we see as love, they don't line up with love as how God sees it. Have the wisdom in your own life to check the word of God. Make sure your love matches what God describes as love. And then he says, be pure in your love. Paul's not asking you to live a perfect life. Be pure in your motive is the idea here. And he's saying, if Jesus Christ returned today, would you be ashamed of your actions? If Jesus Christ returned today, would you be ashamed of your thoughts and how you live? Don't just choose a good path. Look for the best path that brings the most glory and the most honor to Jesus Christ. Look for the path that builds up others in the faith. Be without blame in how you show compassion. Don't cause others to stumble in their faith. Why? Because he says again, the day of Christ is coming when every believer in Jesus Christ must stand before the Lord in answer to Christ. And this should change how we live. This should purify how we live. First John 3, 3 teaches, and everyone who has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, the hope that we have that Christ could return today, it guides us. It guides us. It helps us to choose the best path. And so Paul wraps it up in verse 11 by telling them, be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so here's the thought in this final verse. We have Christ in us. We have the righteousness of Christ in us. Transformed lives demonstrate that God is working. Your testimony in Christ demonstrates that God is working. Your changed life in Christ demonstrates God is working. Paul wants us to sit and think about the day that we stand before Christ. And he is saying, make sure, Christian, that your life is living out the fruit of the Spirit that we just saw listed out for us in Galatians 5. It is spiritual fruit produced by God as the believer submits to his grace working in us. You know, a fruit tree doesn't make a lot of noise. 
when it starts producing a crop. It simply allows the life within to work in the fruit. The fruit is the result. And didn't Jesus say this in John 15, 5? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And so even this, Christians, when we boast, we don't boast in ourselves. We recognize that all the glory and all the praise is due to God because he, he is the one working. It should remind us of the old song, to God be the glory, great things he has done because it's God, God who redeemed us by the work of his son, given us his spirit living in us and empowering us to live for him to the glory and praise of our God. Wonderful lady by the name of Carol Garrett described the tragic day how she suddenly lost her husband, Jim. Jim was age 52. He was killed in an accident while he was driving home from work one day. And a teenager that was drunk hit him and Jim died instantly. And of course, how these things work, and this angers me, the teenager was treated and released. But to make the wound a little more hurtful, it was Carol's 50th birthday. And Jim had two tickets for Hawaii he was going to surprise her with. But this is a story that does not end in sadness because Carol was asked, how did you survive this? How did you go through this? Listen to her words because I think we can learn something. With her eyes filled with tears, she said, you see, the day I married Jim, I promised I would never let him leave the house in the morning without telling him that I loved him. He made the same promise to me, and it got to be a joke in our lives as babies came along. It became a, such a hard, hard promise to keep. Running down the driveway in the morning, leaving notes in the car, saying, I love you with a mouthful of breakfast. Blah, just trying to say, I love you, before the car would leave. With screaming children and a barking dog, Carol said this. She said it became a funny challenge in our lives, just trying to be the first one to do it. We made lots of memories trying to say I love you before noon every day of our married life. And then she wrote that the morning Jim died, he left a birthday card in the kitchen and he slipped out to the car. And I heard the engine starting up and I raced out to the car as fast as I could and I banged on the window until he rolled it down and she said to him, here on my 50th birthday, Mr. James E. Garrett, I, Carol Garrett, want to go on record as saying... I love you. That's how I survived, knowing that the last words I said to him were, I love you. Here's a challenge to take home for you this morning. Let's learn to live together in Jesus Christ with that type of love. Because that's the message that I actually see in Philippians 1 from Paul. Paul told his fellow Christians in verse 3, he said, I thank God for you. I pray for you. Paul told them in verse 7, I have you in my heart. And then Paul reminded them with verse 9, I have you in my prayers. Every one of us in this room has at least one skunk in your life. We do. Every one of us has some sort of trial that we're going to go through. But God's grace sustains us. God's love empowers us. And God's truth guides us. So be confident that God will continue his work in you until when? Until the day of Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. Pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.